having you here joining us today. My name is Christine Plitt, and I'm the VP of Operations and Educational Services here at the Data Incubator. Today, we have a really special topic to cover. We're going to be talking about how to successfully navigate the career transition out of academia into industry. Making the transition from being an academic to a data scientist is probably one of the primary concerns that we hear from students who are grappling with the decision to join our program. So making a huge leap into the unknown is a very scary proposition for most people, which is why we've invited two of our TDI alumni here today to participate in this talk because they've successfully made the jump and they've lived to tell about it. So that's a good thing. Um, they've been in your shoes standing exactly where you are today. And we hope that hearing their stories will help put your mind at ease. So without further ado, I would like to introduce you to our TDI graduates, Newton Lee and Andrew Grascheck. Newton is currently a senior ML engineer at Twitter Cortex, where he works as the technical lead for the ML pipelines team, which builds a platform that powers the majority of ML pipelines at Twitter. Previously, he was placed by TDI at Crunchbase as a data engineer, where he built the news ingestion pipeline that associates news articles with companies and people. Welcome, Newton. All right, and then we'll have uh, Andrew. Dr. Andrew Grashchak completed his PhD in economics from the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in December 2017. His research specialty in game theoretic modeling, Bayesian statistics, and time series anal analysis allowed him to synthesize novel models to capture adverse incentives responsible for behavior that other models struggled to explain. Prior to his career in data science, he developed experience working with a wide variety of data topics from asset bubble formation to housing markets to environmental regulation and agriculture. As a senior data scientist at Cova Strategies, Dr. Grashek applies his multifaceted experience with data and theory to create robust, flexible, and holistic solutions to problems using cutting edge machine learning um, and statistical techniques. So welcome, Andrew. So uh, Newton, Andrew, thank you so much for taking time out of your busy schedule today. Um, a, about a month ago, I sat down with both Newton and Andrew to discuss their transitions in the in industry from academia. And they shared so many wonderful insights um, that led them to make the decision and, and as to where their lives are today. So very quickly before we start digging into that, I do wanna to touch base on who we are and what we do at the Data Incubator. So at the Data Incubator, we offer both part-time and full-time data science and data analytics boot camps for STEM postgraduates. Each year we run our full-time and part-time sessions for our two programs in the winter, spring, summer, and fall all online. You might be familiar with a handful of data boot camps. There's a lot out there, um, but what makes CDI different from the rest is that our programs are completely immersive and hands-on. We take the theory out of it and our programs focus on real-world skills using live code and real data sets. So in addition to that, we have an expert career search team that assists with resume services, interview prep. This helps our graduates land a job as data scientists or data analysts once they leave our program. So if you're interested in learning more, check us out on our website and please do feel free to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, we'll also be providing you with a link um, for our summer cohort application um, at some point during this talk. Uh, which is now open, if you're interested. Okay, so the first three sections of our talk today will cover some of the very helpful insights from Newton and Andrew, and I'll be asking them to interject into their experience um, throughout. So we'll move on uh, then to discussing how to best set yourself up for a career uh, transition into industry 
and once you've made the decision to do so. And so this is based on our tried and true experience in placing students from our program into jobs as data scientists and data analysts. And lastly, we are gonna allow plenty of time at the end for you to ask me and Andrew any questions that you have, as well as any questions about the TEI team um, and our program. So we do ask that you put your questions in the chat and we'll be happy to answer them during the Q&A session at the end. Okay, so the first step when you're deciding whether or not to leave academia and pursue a career in industry is to assess the career landscape and really identify the probability of landing an academic job, either you know, tenured or otherwise. Um, you know, if you've done this, you see you probably know um, based on multiple studies that have shown that depending on the discipline, as few as one-fourth and as many as one half of PhDs get hired in academic jobs at all. And only a third of these jobs are on the tenure track. So the odds of any given PhD getting a tenure track job lies between 10 and 25%. And just to put this into perspective a bit, high school football players have a 6.5% chance of making it into college football, and only 1.6% of these make it into the NFL draft. And so tenured academia is not yet as exclusive as celebrity professions, but it's important to be mindful on how it's trending in that direction. And not only are academic jobs highly competitive due to their scarcity, but there's also a relatively short window where academic jobs are posted and that hopeful applicants can apply. So no two application requirements are the same. So you can expect to send, spend many hours, customize your application, making sure that you, know, you have all of the different details that each university requires. And you're gonna be up against very qualified applicants due to the relatively low number of positions and then the available um, applicant pool. So uh, Newton or Andrew, we discussed the career landscape in academia when we spoke. Would either of you like to jump in and share your personal experiences? Sure, I can start off. So hi, I'm Dr. Andrew Gratchik. Uh, I was given a you know fanfarish introduction earlier, so I won't spend any more time on that. But yeah, a lot of this is pretty accurate. So I, as was mentioned in my bio, got my PhD in 2017 December, and I was kind of an academic. I'm I'm a recovering academic, is what I like to call it. I'm you know you never you know you you never completely leaves you, but I'm re I'm recovering, and you know will be for the rest of my life. No, just kidding, but. Um, it is exactly this. So the economic, and just to keep in mind, econ economics is actually less intense in the sense that uh, we have relatively numerous job postings for faculty jobs compared to many other uh, fields. And yet still you'd get, you know, 300 to 400 applications per job. And there are all kinds of weird messes in job markets, but a lot of your time, you know, in the job market, if you haven't experienced already, will be spent making applications, preparing your statements, personalizing those statements for each institution that you apply for, and you better be applying as many as possible. So yeah, I'd say that eight to 20 hours a week from September to really early January was how, you know, at least eight, maybe yeah, probably up to 20 hours a week, every week was that's, yeah, that, that's pretty accurate for how I spent my time during the four years that I was in the academic world and trying to make applications and get a tenure track job. So that's definitely true. And in addition to that, yeah, you need to, yeah, as, as we mentioned here, you need letters of recommendation. And there's a lot of stress about not only making the applications, but getting interviews, doing the flyout sessions. And if you get to the second round, it's a lot of time. And 
as yeah, during all that time, you're not teaching, you're not writing, you're not, you know, that, that's an addition to the other jobs you do. And so I always like to say that being a professor is already basically two full-time jobs. You've got your teaching responsibilities, which take up a lot of time and you've got your research and this adds another one on top of that, you know, their part-time job on top of that. Uh, and it's, it's intense. So. Yeah, definitely sounds like it. I, you know, I, I read through September, but through January, that's even longer. So, um, what about you, Newton, anything that you want to add there? Sure. Why not? Um, I, I think I was actually a very bad grad student, right? I had a pretty bad academic resume. I didn't publish anything. Um, and, um, yeah, I would, I'm definitely in the statistic that would not get an academic job, <laughs> not definitely not, nothing uh, on a tenure track. And so, yeah, TDI was my way out. And um, yeah, I'm glad to went down to, to go down that path. And uh, just to provide some more context, in my graduating cohort from UNC, where many of us were pushed towards you know, academic jobs, I was actually one of only two out of the 16 that graduated alongside me. And the thing is, the ones who graduated alongside me were not just from my year. So there was actually, you know, because I, as most of you who are in grad school know, you can graduate in, you know, sequence you could graduate in sometime between four and maybe six years. So I was kind of the latter end of mine, you know, taking about six years and some people graduate early, but of the 16 people who graduated around the same time I did, only two of us managed to get academic jobs at all, even though most of us attempted to. And I was actually one of the lat latter, sorry, later ones to jump into into private sector work. So um, of that, you know, so just just one more statistic of the UNC grads and you know, UNC is decently ranked economics program. It's not the best, but it's, you know, we're, you know, we're respectable, but only about two of us even ever got an academic job. And I think of the students I went to grad school with ever, only two have faculty positions <laughs> that I'm aware of. Uh, so it, it, again, it's possible, but it's, you know, the odds are stacked against you. And just to do a full disclaimer, part of that's because there are a lot of private sector applications for economics. A lot of people have been going into things, not if not TDI and something similar. So, but a lot of us have been getting out and that's just the way things are. Okay. So very fierce competition and a lot of work. So, so basically that's just something important to keep in mind. You know, again, we love probabilities. What are the, what's the probability of getting a job versus the time that you're investing in them? Okay. So moving on, um, some of you may be very familiar with the notion, notion of a survivorship bias. This is very pervasive in academia because as PhDs, you're really submersed into the academic environment. You're working closely with your professors who were lucky enough to secure a tenure track position, and so were all of their peers. Um, because of this, professors may incorrectly perceive the academic path as being very stable. This is a false sense of reality, which can be projected onto the students. They're looking to their professors for advice and counsel. So the issue here is that their survivorship bias makes them forget or become disassociated from the actual process of you know, all of those that were not successful. Um, Andrew, you spoke very eloquently on the subject when we, when we met. Are you able to expand on your experience with the encountering the survivorship bias in academia? Yeah. So if you're anything like me and uh, maybe you are, maybe you aren't, but you, if you're in grad school, then you're like me in this respect that you have an advisor and that advisor has a set of experiences, which are likely very different from your own. And amongst those sets of experiences is, so what is the, as, as we mentioned, as Christine just mentioned, 
the survivorship bias. They and everyone they really associate with has already been through this process, but they were part of that 10 to 25% who managed to get in the door. And what's more interesting is that depending on the age of your advisor, and this is you know getting into some labor market theory uh, stuff that is just sort of background economics fun, depending on the time they were in the job market, the odds may have been better. So the odds were actually much better for PhD students about 20 years ago, even as recently as 10 years ago than they are now. And there's a lot of complicated reasons for that, but not the least of which being that, well, there's a few reasons, and I don't know how much they want me to go into this, but it has a lot to do with financial collapse. A lot of people going to grad school rather than going to the job market in 2010, which has cascaded into a lot more PhD students and slash funding leading to fewer uh, expansionary positions for departments. It's way more complicated than that, but I don't want to turn this into like an hour long discussion of you know, PhD job markets. But the point is that your advisor will have, have had a very different experience, that survivorship bias, and was experienced in a very different market than is likely facing students today. And some of them might be more or less cognizant of that, but even if they want to help you, by definition, mostly, you know, sorry, and by help you, I mean, get into other professions, by definition, they probably don't have the experience with going into private sector because that's not what they did. And they may not even know people who did that, at least not closely enough to ask them, you know, at a moment's notice and to help out with the student. So there, when you're, surrounded by people for whom this is the norm, it becomes expected of you that you will continue on this vein and become an academic. And it may not even occur to you that there are other possibilities, or they may even say, oh, well, you go into private sector. How? Where am I going to go? Who am I, well, you know, what's, how do I do that? And that's something that the data incubator can help you with is figure out how to bridge that gap to make it less scary, to guide you into how to sell yourself to non-academics and that's, I think, what a lot of the rest of the presentation is going to be about, is how to set, set up your CV, convert it to a resume, and do all those fun things that your professors may not have the expertise, or at least not the recent expertise, to help you do. Yeah. I'm not sure if that's what you wanted me to talk about. No, that's perfect. Yeah, I think it's just important to recognize that when you're speaking to professor, just be cognizant of the fact that, again, like you said, their experience was in a different time, and that you know they've gotten very comfortable in their tenure track position. And so it might not be as relevant when you're asking them. So just to keep that in mind as you're getting advice on what uh, type of career that you want to pursue. All right. Um, so when you're trying to make a massive life change, the hope is that it will end up being a positive one. So no one goes into making a big decision, wanting it to not work out. Um, but wanting something to work out doesn't eliminate the apprehension and worry of the unknown. So this is why I wanted to share some of the benefits that Andrew and Newton have experienced after leaving academia. So just like you might be feeling now, many academics that have left academia express feeling burnout. They have struggled with research and a lot of worries surrounding the academic job search um, before they decided to pursue a career in industry. So some of these um, benefits making this decision include the ability to solve the pro uh, solve problems using computa computation, not just theory. And um, Newton, you in particular talked about this. You spoke about your interest in working um, with computation, less literature jump, uh, dump, I think you called it, less being bound by citations and less restrictions. So can you speak about the interest that you had in um, computation over theory um, when you decided to make the transition into industry? Sure. Um, so when I was doing research, it was uh, in finite element analysis of uh, concrete structures. And um, 
I was trying to um, like read a bunch of papers on how to do how to do specific analysis of reinforced concrete. Um, and I, I think when I was implementing this in code, I was trying to think like, well, I enjoy this aspect, but what part of this do I actually enjoy? Was it like reading the papers and understanding the theory? Or was it actually like the, the computational part of implementing this in code and seeing it actually run? And I think in the end, I, I concluded that it was, it, yeah, it was just solving problems using computers. That, that was the thing that really interested me. Yeah, and so, I mean, I think it's really important that if you're looking at making this decision, what do you enjoy about working in academia? What do you feel like is missing? And that might be something to explore. Okay, so another uh, another factor to take into consideration is location flexibility, um, especially if you have a significant other in the mix. So if you are able to land a tenure track position, you cannot move. Um, so can either of you share your experience or, or your thoughts with this, because I think it's important, you know, if you get a job in Oklahoma, you're going to stay there. Yeah, so, oh, sorry, were you gonna say something? I don't know. Uh, you can go ahead, uh, I'll say something after. <clears throat> so, a couple things on that, and yeah, the location, the, the sheer, not only the number of jobs in the private sector is by definition of the private sector being a bigger industry than universities and academia, will naturally be a large number of jobs available to pick from. The variance in positions in terms of physical location is also much greater. So you can find a job in most places. And the other cool thing about being in data science, especially in the you know, post-COVID era, if there was anything COVID did that was good for people is realizing the power of remote working. So you can really, I mean, I'm, I remote work at a company that did remote work before COVID was a thing, and now they're doubling down and building better infrastructure even for remote work. So your positions are more flexible if you have to go in the office. And more than likely these days, you probably can just be anywhere and do your, doesn't require as much face-to-face -face interaction. You don't have to be places to host conferences or uh, you know teach classes, and you're not bound by locations at all. And for me, it's especially important because my wife is still an academic and she's very good at it. And she's well, probably one of those people who's going to get a tenure shot job because she's really phenomenal and has, you know, all kinds of you know, heat to her name and her field. I wasn't one of those people. Um, and she's going to be much more space and time, or, you know, physical space constrained than I will be. So having two people in academia is really an unsolvable problem, I think. And I've never, I only know one couple who's managed to do it to any degree of satisfaction of all the, the academic or previously academic couples that I've ever known. Um, and one thing I will say just about the last point though, is about the ability to solve problems with computation, not just theory. If you're a theorist, like I was, there's still room for you in data science. So the application of theory that you can bring to the table for thinking of wild math solutions to problems is still helpful. You know, I use all kinds of fun, uh, you know, abstract math solutions to think of interesting ways to apply data and think of interesting ways to set up models using my mathematical game theory experience, even though my actual pre-TDI computation experience was pretty minimal and just you know basic some MATLAB modeling stuff and nothing that I would consider data science in a meaningful way. But that's you know one thing to add on there. Yeah, and I, what I have to add is um, I actually got married in the middle of uh, the TDI fellowship, um, and my my wife um, got into med school and. Um, I knew that in four years, I don't know if you know how this works, but in four years you apply to residency and you match somewhere in the US. And at the same time, I was applying to a bunch of academic jobs 
but I was also, also like thinking about TDI and I, like what, what made me go the industry route for sure was that in four years I, I would have to move somewhere and we wouldn't know where that was. And, um, that gave like working industry gives me the flexibility to move almost anywhere in the, in the country and still have a job. Um, and that's what happened. I, I was in California and I'm in New York today and that's because she matched in New York and now I'm here still doing the same job for Twitter. And so it worked out. Yep. And, um, if you, you know, we're in an academic job, that would be, uh, to Andrew's point, much more difficult. So another thing to keep in mind, um, I think we also, you both already touched on the increased, uh, job prospects also, you know, much higher income potential. There's fixed salary increases um, in academia, so it's relatively static or pretty static. Would you agree with that? Very static. Yeah. yeah. And so, then there's a lot of room to grow with uh, data science. So would, would you like to add on to that? I mean, I think you hit the nail on the head. In academia, you will get two races in your life, unless you go into, you know, if you're in a university setting, um, the you can be a little more flexible if you go into like public sector you know, GS salary positions, but those are even sometimes harder to get into than even academia because they're more stable. So that's an even tougher reach. But in in mainstream academia, you get two raises. So when you're an assistant professor, you make a salary, you get a salary bump when you get tenure. And then if you make full professor, you get another salary bump. And usually that's about it. Um, maybe at least in all the fields that I know of econ and uh, marine sciences through my wife. Um, but that is basically it. And, you know, the, the, uh, I, I don't know, Newton, if you have more experience with, it. I, I'm re relatively recent entry into a data science world, but I can imagine what the prospects are, but I imagine you've gotten probably a raise in the last few years. Oh, like every year. <laughs> um, yeah, so. it's, and it's been incredible, actually. Like it's sort of unbelievable. <laughs> um, a, a really great resource. If you're curious about what the numbers are, if you go to levels.fyi, you can see, like how much people are getting paid at almost any company, uh, any major company at least. Yeah, and there's still room to grow. So that's a very exciting thing, I think. Um, otherwise, you know, it's almost like living on a fixed income um, as an academic because you know what you're gonna make for in perpetuity for the most part. So um, another thing, you know, one of the things that we hear that people are worried about or that they feel like they're going to miss is the opportunity to teach and mentor. You know, you, you go into this profession as an academic because you love teaching. There's a lot of other things that you're doing, but that's a part of the job. Um, the good news is that there's opportunities to teach and mentor in the private sector. And you can find ways to get the same effect of teaching and sharing your knowledge. Um, and you can really see that come to fruition because you're with these people throughout their career. Um, Newton, you talked about Twitter University. Do you want to share a little bit about that? Yeah. So, um... A lot of larger companies, um, like the size of Twitter, they actually have internal programs. Um, and so Twitter has one called Twitter University, which is a whole, like, there, there are people dedicated to this program. And then you as an engineer or a data scientist can actually sign up to be a teacher for a certain course and have a class and uh, curriculum and all that. And so um, I, that was one of the things I really loved about academia was the ability to teach and mentor. And it's still very available in the private sector. Yep, that's great. So I think that will put a lot of um, a lot of ease uh, in the minds of these folks because you do have an opportunity to still teach and make a difference. 
Um, an another thing that was actually interesting to me, having only worked in industry, is that you both talked about the focus um, with teams and working uh, collaboratively. And so you mentioned that when you're in academia, you're kind of a lone wolf. And so you're out there, you have to figure out things on your own, figure out how long you're going to have to spend to, to do a certain project. But when you went into um, industry, you really were surprised by the fact that it was so collaborative and that you actually had people to bounce things off of. And that was very satisfying. So anything that you guys would like to add to that? Well, I mean, I think you kind of said it right there is it's the so keep in mind, this will, if you're in grad school and you're thinking, what a, what nonsense you're talking about, this is very dependent upon what field you're in and, you know, the, the lab structure. But in economics, and I imagine most other social sciences and some hard sciences that don't have a strict lab structure, you can get lost really easily. And one of the things I really liked when I went to, I work at Cova Strategies, as mentioned uh, earlier, and I was part of a data science team, and we could all think about and contribute our own ways to solve a problem. If there was some problem that was really eating one of us up, we all had our own assignments, but we would help solve problems together. So we have, in fact, right now during this meeting, I've gotten some uh, chats on Microsoft Teams that we use, and I've actually responded very clandestinely uh, on suggestions of how to solve some problems. So even, you know, the collaboration never really stops. And I've, you know, posted problems like, I don't know how to solve this. What is, what is this package doing? I have no idea. And people are like, oh, I dealt with this a year ago. Try this. And, uh, you know, you can share your experience or just off the wall ideas. Maybe sometimes things are not easily solvable, but you struggle and share the burden. And it's, for me, a really nice change of pace to know that somebody has your back and that you're part of a team that's working on something together rather than a bunch of parts that come together like a jigsaw puzzle at the end. Yeah, nothing up to add is, yeah. So I, I experienced this in academia. Um, I coded something and ran the analysis and the results weren't what were, were expected. And I just kept trying to hack at this bug. And it, you know, um, I talked to my, my advisor about this and he's like, well, don't, no one knows how to code but you, so you're on your own, right? And so I would just bang my head against the same problem for a month alone, just trying to fix this. Um, in industry, it's, it's way different. You, you like, you give status updates every day and you're like, oh, um, there's actually a word for it called blocker. Well, I'm like, I'm stuck on this one thing, right? It's blocker. And the whole team works together to try to unblock you. Um, and it's, it's great having that, that people, that like support structure to back you up and help you solve problems. Uh, it's a wonderful thing. Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. I think that's important for people to know there's help, there's help out there. Um, and, and lastly, one thing that, um, you know, I think that we should, discuss is the work-life balance. And so there's a perception um, that you guys discuss amongst, amongst academics that the uh, work-life balance in the industry is terrible. Um, and that, you know, uh, this is actually not what you observed when you made the transition and that, in fact, there is no work-life balance in academia. Um, you know, Andrew mentioned that you're working two to three jobs, um, working on grants, you're teaching, you're doing research. Um, and so there's a lot happening. And then on the weekend, you're worrying about your uh, your grants. And so there's just a lot happening and it doesn't stop. And so do you guys feel that you have better work-life balance in industry than you did in academia? I guess I'll start uh, for sure. <laughs> um, I, I think one of the things that really surprised me was um, when I told my manager when I started working at Twitter, like, hey, um, uh, this like this work, it's moving a lot slower than I thought. I'm gonna try to hack on it over the weekend and get it done. And my manager actually stopped. He's like, "No, 
no, I do not want you working over the weekend. I want you to have time for you and your family. I don't want you burned out, right? Um, I don't think that's that's a word I'll ever hear out of my academic advisor. <laughs> He'd be like, yeah, we, we need to get this, like, we need to get this research done. So yeah, work hard. Um, it doesn't matter how much time it takes you, right? Um, so I would say it's, it's a very different attitude, yeah. Yeah, I, I definitely I agree. I think the first time you know, just um, so I've been working at Cove for six months, just uh, past my six month, you know, demi anniversary. So but the first time, you know, about a few a couple of weeks in when we were hitting our first, you know, kind of real roadblock when I was thinking, oh, I'll look at this over the weekend. And my boss said, no, wait till Monday, you know, relax. You put in like 50 hours this week, probably, you know, you you work plenty. You know, you're not uh, you know, technically you're only supposed to work 40 hours a week. Just just relax, don't burn out. And yeah. it's definitely a, a better, it, again, obviously there's going to be variation across you know employers and across teams, but the team I'm lucky enough to be part of, it sounds like Newton's lucky enough to be a part of, is that way. And your bosses understand that, you know, it's, it's, it's not just altruistic, it's that if you're burnt out, you're going to be useless to them anyway. So, you know, why not just lean into it and say, no, re recharge, then don't burn out. And I realize we're saying a whole bunch of bad stuff about academia. I've seen the chat, like, is there anything good about academia? And, uh, you know, sort of on this work-life balance schedule is, you know, I always thought when I was still in academia that the next stage would be better. So when I was in grad school, I was like, oh, well, once I graduate, everything will be fine. And then I thought, oh, man, this is even worse because now I'm like on the job market all the time. And I'm, you know, trying to do all these like postdoctoral stuff and visiting, assess managing my visiting assistant professorships and teach classes and do all this stuff. This is horrible. But when I get a faculty job, it'll be fine. And then I see my friend, you know, some people who do have faculty jobs and like, well, now they have to manage grants and they have to, you know, manage their labs and they have to get grad students and postdoctoral students. And it's just sort of this monotonic increase in responsibility. But I'd say that, you know, the good thing about it, if, if you're into that, so the work-life balance is probably not, if, if you're going to academia, don't do it because you think the work-life balance is better. And, you know, my, I, I heard from a, an established academic that, you know, you go into academia so that people will pay you whatever they're willing to pay you to satisfy your own curiosity and set and solve problems that you think need to be solved. And if you have that drive, if you have that curiosity and you are good at it, then maybe academia is for you. But if you want, you know, basically anything else, if you want to not have that be your entire drive for existing, then the private sector is a great place to look because as we've seen all these bullet points, the private sector can do better for you if you have the right connections and the right way of approaching it, which TDI can provide for you. All right, thank you, well said. All right, so at this point, you know, if you've, you've made the decision to take the leap or you know, you're, to you're toying with that, once you make that call, there's a few steps that you can take to really set yourself up for success during your transition. And one of the most important keys to success is having a standout resume. And so a great first step in creating a resume that stands out is making sure that it's well organized. And you know, for us, we're placing people in jobs all the time, that's what we do. And so based on feedback from our hiring partners, you wanna start out with your technical experience first. And if you don't, and you don't have to go into extreme detail, but just make sure it's clear and concise. The next step is going to be highlighting your experience effectively. And this can be easier said than done when you're trying to get into a career as a data scientist, especially if the bulk of your experience is in academia. And so if this is the case for you, some of your experience is just not going to translate to people that are outside of academia, unless you can make sure it's very clear and easy to understand. And I think it's important to, to note that 
most of the time, the first person you're reviewing your resume will likely be non-technical, especially for, especially for roles at large companies. So you want to make sure that your resume conveys your expertise and qualifications at first glance to every desk it comes across. So let's talk about CVs. So unlike a resume that lists your work history, your experience and overview of your skills and education, a CV is far more comprehensive. So this is great if you're defending your dissertation, but far too detailed for any job outside of a university looking for teaching staff. So I suggest doing some research and potentially investing in hiring, in hiring a high quality resume service. Just make sure they have experience working on technical resumes. And after all, you know, your technical experience, you're gonna to wanna to list your work experience if you have any. You can weave in some examples of how you apply your technical skill throughout your experience where it applies. And while you definitely wanna include your academic experience, you wanna make sure that you stick with the most important and relevant components. So that's coursework, teaching experience, your dissertation title. You want to make sure that you shy away from really specific information like the names of your academic advisors. No, nobody wants to talk to them. Um, your GPA, even if it was really good. And also any extreme detail about your dissertation. So if they have questions about your dissertation, they can ask you or you can save it for a water cooler chat after you have the job. Um, and so hopefully these tips will help you. And you know, just again, making sure that you take the time to customize your resume for each job so that you send out and you set yourself apart. Um, in the TDI program, we do offer resume writing services, but again, there's a lot of different options out there. So let's say you took our advice and your resume is a stunner. Now what? So the next step is showing the hiring manager that not only do you have the skills necessary to do the job, but you know how to apply them. So like I mentioned earlier, not everyone who can write amazing code knows what to do with it and why it matters. So more often than not, you've worked in projects in your career as an academic that are relevant to solving a lot of business problems. But what we see frequently is that these projects are lacking context. And so um, make it easy for the hiring manager to connect the dots. You received a prestigious scholarship, expand on that. So there's an example of doing just that on the side of the screen. If you're really stumped and you're unable to see how your experience working on a project could apply in, business, in a business setting, tap into someone in your network. It should be very easy for a business person to spot the connections. And then lastly, just put all the efforts that you took to upskill and get you where you are into your resume, into the depth and breadth of your experience. And um, I don't know if you, Andrew, or, or Newton have anything that you want to add on that since you've been through this. Yeah, one of the things that I learned and I was told on my first day by TDI that I'm glad they told me and I you know, had to repeat to myself a whole bunch of times before I believed it myself, but that ultimately helped me a lot is that you know a lot of things. You know a lot of stuff. It might not be the same stuff everybody else knows, but you know a lot of stuff. If you're in grad school, if you're on the PhD track, even if you haven't gotten your PhD, you know a lot of stuff. And you can probably use the stuff you know to help people do things that they want to do. And all you need to do is connect the dots. And one of the things in academia that we tend to think about is what, you know, why is a problem interesting? And that's, it's a, it's a good thing to think about, but what you probably want to sell to an employer is not why is a problem interesting, but or even what a study can tell us, but what can we do with it? So normally we think about, okay, why is this interesting? What can this tell us? We want to go straight to the step of what can a business or somebody do with this to do something in a market? And the problem, you know, most probably most of the ideas that you have that are interesting will have some application. You just have to, instead of you know, walking through the entire meandering path of what's interesting, why and how, and who's done what, just go to the end, say, 
hey, we can do this with this study or with this with this idea. And that I think is very helpful. And you know things, you can apply your knowledge and have faith in yourself, I guess, is, as, yeah. as hard as that is. We're, we're kind of baked in with this. I feel like grad school is, is perfectly designed to generate imposter syndrome. Uh, you are not an imposter. You're the real deal. <laughs> have to recognize that in yourself. I love that. Thank you. All right. Okay, so uh, next I want you guys, everybody out here there to really take a moment to let this sink in. So it is rare to land your dream job as your first job, but the experience you gather from the jobs you do get will get you closer to that dream job. So it's really easy to read this and agree and say, okay, yeah, that makes sense. But this is where we've seen a lot of people falter and walk away from actual job, job offers for real jobs that are willing to pay them actual real money because when they don't have any, because the job doesn't fit their expectations of their dream job. And so it's not my intent for you to all become disillusioned, but I do want to help set realistic expectations. So you can get your dream job, absolutely, but that might not be your first job and that's okay. So it's okay. So just to expand on that a little bit further, you know, it's important to keep your mind open and, and remind yourself of the following. You're never going to regret, regret taking the interview. It's always great practice. So Maybe you don't think that the opportunity is a great fit, but at the very least, it's an opportunity to practice and show um, what you your skills in a very low risk setting. So you don't if you don't think you want the job, then you have nothing to lose. You're going to learn more about yourself so you can promote and position yourself better because, you know, when you start to say things a few times, you start to develop a flow and getting your first job is, is really hard. Um, so currently, especially in the current economic climate, there's no denying that, but what can help you is being flexible in location industry. So maybe you can't imagine living any, anywhere outside of where you live now, but the more flexibility you have, the more likely you're going to be able to get a job offer. And every job you get gives you valuable experience that you can add to your resume. And one important thing is that it's easier to get a job when you already have one. So not only are you more confident in the interview when you have a job, because the stakes aren't as high, but the hiring manager perceives this too. And so you're no longer a newbie just looking for their first chance. And so the, the experience is going to be worth it. You'll learn what you do and you don't like in a work environment. And every job is a step towards your dream job. So I'll tell you this, a lot of students come into our program saying they wanna work um, at one of the things. So Facebook, Apple, Netflix, Google, Twitter. And what we tell them is that a lot of our alumni are working at these companies like Apple, Facebook, um, Twitter. Like look at Newton, he's there right now, but we didn't place him there. So he, he got there by saying yes and getting his foot in the door somewhere else first. So remember, this is not your, this is your first dated science job. It's not a lifelong long commitment. So Newton, you're currently working at Twitter, which is a highly coveted company after being placed best at Crunchbase. What advice do you have to our attendees today on getting your foot in the door with your first job? And do you think you would have been successful in getting a job at Twitter without first working for Crunchbase? I would say I definitely would not even get my resume to be like read by the by the recruiter if I didn't have um, Crunchbase under my belt, right? Um, I, I think getting that first job is the hardest, the hardest thing that, that you can do. Um, I applied to dozens of companies um, um, as for my first job and most of them didn't even respond to me. But after working at Crunchbase for I think half a year, I started getting recruiters contacting, contacting me, like cold calling me, right? Going like, hey, please work here, even, even Facebook. Uh, recruiter for Facebook was like, hey, like, please work here. Um, and so I, I think, yeah, just getting that first job is 
the hardest, but once you do, then it's all the opportunities open up for you. Yeah, I think it's really important to note um, because the sky's the limit. It's like a chicken and egg, right? You just have to get the first job and then you're going to have experience and then you, there's so many different opportunities. Um, so important to keep in mind. Um, and then again, you know, investing in yourself is really important. You want to set yourself up for success um, in your transition. You know, um, getting certified is a great way to do this. There's nothing like getting an extra credential to boost your confidence. And you can look at job postings to see what kind of experience and credentials companies are looking for and go for it. Um, you can look for experiences that give you our programs that give you practical experience that you can apply right away in your new job. You know, knowing that your skills are cutting edge, you should be really confident in making an impact on day one. And if you're going to uh, spend your time investing in yourself, do your research and don't be afraid to ask for stats on employment, post completion. And again, you have to be really what, uh, ready and willing to advocate for yourself. So Newton and or Andrew, do you feel that by going through the TA program that you were provided with a leg up in your career transition to becoming a data scientist? I mean, I would say I was. So a bit of you know background on me, like I said, I, I did some minimal data stuff. I was more, I was very familiar with statistics, but not really with programming. I was mostly a theorist who did some statistics to get reviewers off my back that I didn't have any data, you know, that kind of thing. And I didn't really have any Python experience before making the TDI application. And now I'm doing a lot of cool stuff, mostly with Python and some other languages. So I would say it really helped. It, it, one of the biggest things that TDI provides is the access to the one uh, resume creation services and two, an awesome team of um uh, i guess i guess I'm trying to remember sierra what, what do you call the, the your team i can't remember what the official title is uh, maybe she can't i don't know if she's and program services so yeah yeah i can't remember i can't remember what the official what the official job help team is called uh, i don't want to give them the wrong name in this you know official presentation but <laughs> they will work a lot with you and for you to help you find connections and find the fits that work for you. So I would say the TDI definitely gave me an advantage in knowing how to structure a resume and knowing how knowing who's looking and who would be interested in someone with my background and skill set. Yeah, I agree with all of that. Um, I, I mean, prior to TDI, I didn't even know what machine learning was, right? That was one of the things when I started applying, I just Googled like, what is machine learning? I don't even know what it is. Um, and now I'm a technical lead for a machine learning team at Twitter, right? It's, um, I, I, I don't think I could have gotten anywhere. Like maybe I could have gotten here on my own, but I think it would have taken years longer. Like it's, it's very guided, right? It's like, I didn't even know what I didn't know, right? And so like TDI just um, like led me down the path to, to get to where I am today. It's an accelerated path. and. Uh, I can even recall like during Twitter's like interview, which is like a whole gauntlet of a lot of questions, like their first question was something I learned in TDI. And then on the onsite, there was another like really difficult question. And it was like, oh yeah, I remember something about MapReduce that I did during the TDI fellowship. And, and that, yeah, that basically got me in the door. Um, so I, I would say I, I owe where I am to TDI, yeah. Well, that is very nice. Thank you. All the, all the warm and fuzzies, all the feels. All right, so I know you guys all have a bunch of questions. I see a lot um, in the Q&A section. So just very quickly, um, right now we have in our spring um, offerings that we're launching. So we have our summer application. We have our full-time data science fellowship. That's eight weeks. 
We have our part-time data science fellowship, which is the same content, but over 20 weeks and in the evenings. And then now we are launching our part-time data analyst program. And so lots of good stuff happening. And I've got some dates up here um, of upcoming uh, deadlines for our applications that opened um, just a, a week or so ago. And we it closes on um, the 7th of May. And so I think we could probably drop this in the chat because I'm going to stop sharing my screen so that we can start taking some questions. So first question. I wonder whether you have any advice for people who work in academia who have exposure to analytics and data science but don't have a PhD. Isn't that me? <laughs> so I dropped out of the PhD program after I, I discovered I don't really need one to, to move uh, to progress in industry. And so I, I don't know. Um, you, you need to get your foot in the door to get that first job somehow and do whatever you can to get that job, I think. Yeah. And, you know, you're not going to get a job at like uh, Google uh, as your first job, like they said, but it, a lot of startups are more open minded and willing to accept someone that might have the experience, but not necessarily the credentials. Um, and so, yeah, I'll start there. Well, and, you know, you did it. So that's a great um, use case right there. So, okay. And I think we've already um, touched on this. Newton. I don't know if you saw it, but did you have a background in machine learning before joining TDI? You said no. What about you, Andrew? Did you? I did not. I was never really exposed to machine learning in my PhD program. It was mostly stats in esoteric math. So I did no machine learning. In fact, you know, it wasn't even a thing that was ever presented on uh, in, in, my, in my discipline. So no, no machine learning, period. But do you know machine learning now? Oh, yeah. Yeah, now I can do machine learning. So <laughs> so yeah, sorry, I didn't know if that was part of the question. No, I think it's uh, important you know, to note that you can overcome those hurdles. All right, so here's another one from Hannah. I have been following TDI programs for a few months now. It appears the main focus is for those who are in a STEM field. I am political science, but still developed a decent statistical knowledge. What advice for grad students like me who are not in STEM fields but would like to go into industry do you have? Career Center for my school advised me to look for an opportunity where I can leverage my social science training. I'm wondering what the sweet spot may be for people like me. So that I might have some insight on because, you know, economics isn't quite the same as poli-sci, but it is not a STEM field. And like you, I also learned a lot of math and statistics stuff in my undergraduate and graduate careers that I'm leveraging basically every day. In fact, I would say I do more you know, math and stats now than even when I was in grad school or as, as a, uh, you know, as a professor. But uh, I would say that the best advice I can give in terms of finding a job is one that, as I mentioned before, you do have a lot of skills. I don't know you personally, I don't know what those skills are, but you must have them. And you have insight into something. For me, it was insight into how networks, uh, you know, behavioral networks work and game theory and a bunch of Bayesian statistical stuff to tie it all together and a bunch of weird abstract math to design neural nets when that all fails. For you, it might be different. But the key for you, I think, and what, at least what was the key for me, was finding employers who were interested, not just in having a data scientist, but in, ha in having a data scientist who can do what you do. So to give you an example, the two offers I got coming out of TDI, one was with a company that was largely doing labor market research, which was directly stuff that I had worked on as a grad student slash professor. And the job I'm working on now was interesting to me because of my game theory 
work, which I'm now leveraging on supply chain analytics and, you know, adversarial network design. So you, in order to, I'd say that the best thing for you to do is one, have faith in yourself going forward and yeah, think about how to leverage yourself, not an arbitrary other ideal data scientist that's in your mind. Think about what you can bring to the table and chances are somebody wants that. That's great advice, thank you. Okay, next question. At what stage in the graduate training graduation process would you recommend joining TDI? I, I guess we can't really answer that because I guess you know Newton did it one time. I did it, I did it after graduating, you know, almost almost three years after graduating. Newton did it before graduating. I guess it's whenever you feel like you want to or need to. Now, chances are, if you, you know, whenever you feel like academia might not be for you, or even if you think academia might be for you, but you have, you know, you want to build up data science experience. I don't know, Newton, do you have any specific stuff for that? Yeah, I, I, my answer would kind of be like yours. <laughs> I don't really know what's best for someone. Um, yeah, whenever, I don't know, whenever you think you have like two months to, to give to this, yeah. I guess what Newton and I do have a comment is that we did TDI, we did data science when we realized that what we were doing wasn't working in academia. So I guess whenever that point is, if you're here, maybe it's now. If not, maybe you want to stick it out and not do it now. Yeah, that's great. And you know, the one thing that I would add, just knowing our hiring partner network, is that you might get a job offer. Um, so if you're in school and you say, I would love to work there in two years, they might not love that. So um, I think when you're ready to, to make that investment in changing careers, or you can still have a job in a tenure program, but do part-time. And so that, that stretches it out. So those are some things to think about too. All right, let's go to the next question here. Um, in terms of introducing TDI fellows to companies um, and industries, how does that work? Sorry, how does what work? Sorry, I'm not. How does the process of uh, meet, uh, being introduced to hiring partners work? Oh. What was your experience with that? So I don't know if it's changed. So I think Newton was in the program a few years before I was. Uh, but how it worked last summer. So just to give you guys some perspective, I was in your position literally one year ago today. I was starting on my application. Uh, so I was, you know, about a year past, you know, starting TDI thoughts. Um, so. My job market experience with TDI was in June to August of this year. And the way it worked for me was after a certain point in TDI's program, they open up a panel for you where you can see who's interested in hiring. That's when you start interacting a lot with the job search team who will help put you in touch with people that you think will be interested in what you're doing or that they think will be interested in what you're doing and can do uh, based on your interests and geography preferences that you one or both parties may have. Um, I don't know how detailed I'm going to get with that, but it's, I don't know, is that, is that, was that basically your experience, Newton? Uh, I, I think so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that you guys kind of nailed it. I mean, it's balanced between your coursework that you're doing in the program, but we also, um, do have an emphasis on placements and getting people introduced to our hiring partners. All right, so I'm gonna move on to the next question. 
Um, in academia, generally, we have a lot of flexibility in choosing diverse research projects that interest us. How flexible is it working in industry? Newton, you may have more experience on this one. What do you, what do you think? Um, I, I don't know. I would say that the flexibility is somewhat similar, right? Because even in academia, I think your advisor has some ideas what we should work on. Um, similarly, uh, at Twitter, Twitter has some company objectives that they have um, ideas of what uh, they want people to work on, right? That you want to do projects that achieve that objective. Um, at the same time, there is flexibility. Like if you have an idea uh, that you think there's a gap somewhere that this needs to be worked on, you can always advocate for it as well. Um, but you know, you're always going to have to prove it to someone, um, just like you have to prove to your advisor that this is something worthwhile that you can work on. Um, so yeah, I think somewhat similar. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I think that you know, there's flexibility in academia, but ultimately it's what can you get through either your advisor or if you're you know, a professor level, what can you get funding from a grant or your institution to do? So there's never really like, I'm gonna do whatever I want. <laughs> you know, you have to, and even if you do have funding from your university, Think about what can I get published? You know, what are what are the uh, my reviewers going to let through here? And so, just in my you know minimal experience, while the main project is not something I get to choose, I've gotten to choose a lot of ways on how I solve problems, like what kind of models I integrate into our solutions, what kinds of thinking goes into the way we address a topic. Uh, for example, in about an hour, I'm going to be presenting some uh, results from some user interface integration to a uh, watch list defined search algorithm that I've been developing uh, for a project. So the, so the point is I have you know, decided to do that and got permission from the company to not only use my time, but get other people roped into my little project that is you know, going on. So there's, obviously it's gonna vary from location to location, from job to job, but there can be just as much flexibility or at least some flexibility, I mean, depending on what you're looking for. I don't know if that answers the question. Great, thank you. Um, we have time for just a couple more questions since we're coming to the end of the hour here. So um, here's one from Karen. What would you recommend for a tenured associate professor who is considering a leap at 55 years old? Are you familiar with similar uh, situations? So Karen, you're one of the people that actually got the, the tenured job. So what do you guys say? I have no idea. It's way beyond my wheelhouse of expertise. I, I've actually, I, I, I'm aware of some people who are professors at universities that also work for startups. Um, so I, I don't know. Um, I'm not sure how they did that. <laughs> so I, it's it's out there. It is possible, I would say. All right, great. Um, can you give us an idea of what a typical day looks like for you? I honestly don't have a super clear picture of what a data scientist is. I thought this was a good one. And here I mentioned that Newton and my answers may diverge very greatly. Newton, you want to go first or should I go first? Uh, yeah, so I'm not really a data scientist. I'm a machine learning engineer, but at the same time, I'm a technical lead. And so at this point, I, I'm solving like very high level problems that cross many different teams. And I, I like uh, give guidance to people in my team to go, hey, solve this problem or solve that problem, write up documents um, to show how all of this fits together. But I'm not solving these individual problems on my uh, myself anymore. I'm just giving guidance on how to, how they're solving. I'm solving like larger systemic issues. Um, so yeah, I don't, that's my experience now. And I think probably Andrew has more like hands-on work. I'm guessing. 
<clears throat> yeah, so I'm one of the people that gets told to solve problems, um, though mm -hmm. I'm, you know, hopefully able to do that. But my day would be, you know, around 9 a.m. I log into my laptop. I have my coffee and I see, you know, what meeting, you know, we sync up for the day, make sure we're all on track, keep track of meetings. Because in the data science team in my job, there are several different teams that all have their own projects, but we, you know, sometimes, you know, intermingle together, as I mentioned. Um, go do whatever it is I need to do before the next meeting. Uh, that could be maybe debugging a program. It could be writing some new functionality. It could be integrating two pieces of code that other people have written together. There's a lot of variants. It could be sometimes it's even figuring out, okay, there's a problem we want to solve, but we don't have any code. We don't know how to solve it. Look up or use your crazy math to figure out what you can do to solve this problem in some weird way to use the data we have to get the something resembling the answer we want. Uh, and coming up with some demos of how that could work. Um, and yeah, then presenting that to people, you know, depending on what day of the week it is, we have different you know, meeting schedules. And then you do that and you solve some problems and probably create more problems that you didn't know were gonna be there and that you had to solve the next day. And that's it. And then, you know, eventually you're done, you know, five, five thirty-ish, you get done and you uh, start it all again tomorrow. Yeah, that's the thing. It's always there waiting for you in the morning. Yep. Okay, well, thank you both so much. Um, I, I personally learned a lot. I thought this was very helpful. I know you um, guys got a lot of hard-hitting questions that you answered um, very well, so thank you. And Erica has put some information in the chat as far as our application. And again, if we didn't get to any of your questions, um, please email us at um, admissions at the data incubator.com. But again, thank you so much, uh, Newton and Andrew. I really appreciate your time. And thank you everyone for attending. Thank you.